0: This is the Innovation Engine Podcast. Every Monday, we bring you interviews with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. We talk about company culture, corporate leadership, emerging trends in technologies and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global's headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at disruptive innovation in the media and entertainment space, why the definition of what it means to be a media company is rapidly changing, how media companies are dealing with the advent of live streaming and incorporating it into broadcast programming, and what the future of advertising looks like in an era of everything on demand. Here with us today to discuss those topics and more is Chris Graham. Chris is the client executive in the media and entertainment vertical here at Three Pillar Global. Chris works with clients across the media and entertainment landscape, including broadcast media, online media, publications and newspapers, gaming, music, and sports. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks, Will. Appreciate you having me here. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. Thanks for joining us. So, let's kick things off today talking about some of the high level trends you're seeing amongst clients in the media and entertainment space. What are some of the things that clients are coming to you most worried about today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, I think from a trends perspective, we continue to see you know the rise of on demand content be popular, right? So that that often means OTT is is still a hot space. Uh, Apple TV, Amazon coming in, Roku, and all the other candidates that are already out there. That that's becoming uh, more and more popular. Users are wanting to um, consume their content where and when they want. But then along with that, I think the other trend that that continues to rise is this idea of live streaming. Right. So it's not just content that you're you're recording, or rather you're viewing. Off of um, your set-top box at a scheduled time, Uh, but it's it's tapping into content real time, and it's not just on the TV anymore. It's it's online. It's on your mobile device. You know, Periscope and Miracat are two great examples. We're
0: periscoping right now and have. That's right. This is like the most meta thing ever. Uh, Chris is periscoping me. On the podcast as we talk about yeah. things like live streaming
1: yeah so but you know those are two examples of how um, live streaming is happening within the social space but but we are seeing um, bigger media companies get into live streaming in new ways that that they hadn't before a great example of that is actually uh, PBS one of our clients here at three pillar we've worked with them for many years and um, uh, PBS just wrapped up actually last night a show called Big Blue Live and um, they did it in partnership with BBC Earth and um, they see they saw some great success from that and and what they did was they not only produced a live show on TV so users could tune into their typical um, PBS channel on their set top box but then there was a, a an element of it on uh, online as well so you could live stream. Um, from the PBS website, um, or you could access it from your mobile device. And that was sort of a a first opportunity for them to try out live streaming. But we obviously see live streaming happening within the sports uh, industry as well, and and how more and more uh, media companies are are streaming um, content online so that they can reach fans that they otherwise wouldn't be able to reach.
0: Yeah, and, and we we talked a little bit yesterday about some of the results that PBS has seen and how Big Blue Live came to be. Do you know what the viewership was like? And also, can you talk a little bit about the testing process that they went through to figure out whether or not it was something that would be viable?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, from what's public and what was shared, I think the first night they saw five million viewers join the the broadcast. Now, I think that may have actually been UK audience because what what they did was they actually aired the first night in the UK, and they used it as a bit of a trial run to make sure that you know if they're going to do this live streaming broadcast, they had all the the kinks worked out, so they they aired first uh, first night in UK. and That may be where the five million viewers came in, and then the following night they then started in the US, and uh, and then it ran for you know three one hour increments across three nights. Um, online, from a social perspective, they they, they had great user engagement. Um, I think there were ways that they were able to, um, you know, PBS and BBC they like to do to to drive awareness and create content that is very meaningful and purposeful. And and in this scenario, I think they were able to raise a lot of awareness um, around the Monterey Bay and the aquarium and the mission there. So, you know, sort of initial, as soon as it's wrapped up, based on what we've seen so far, I'd say it was a, a wild success. From a technology standpoint, everything worked as planned. There weren't any issues that, um, that happened with... Um, you know, the, from a technology standpoint, where all of a sudden they got too much traffic, like we see when House of Cards goes live on Netflix. Sometimes they deal with—I guess they haven't more recently—but in the past they've dealt with some um, some challenges just to to keep up with the traffic. PBS and BBC it worked um, perfectly fine; everything went well.
0: Yeah. So, l- let me ask you about the kind of technology behind that because I tried to watch some of the first Republican presidential debate on FoxNews.com. And they had some serious streaming issues, so I ended up turning to Periscope, which, once again, you're streaming us on, so thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah, let's get some shots of you in there. (laughs) Uh So, So how are companies like PBS and BBC managing that load when they have... You know, huge audiences trying to turn in, trying to tune in to some of their programming all at once. And what maybe did Fox News not have right? I understand maybe there was probably unprecedented demand because of the Donald. The Donald Trump. Yeah, I think he may have stole the
1: show a little bit and crashed things. Um, yeah, it's it's a challenge. I mean, it is um, it is something that I think every tech team tries to do their best to prepare for. Um, where you've got this sort of these business goals this digital strategy and, and 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 then that's coupled with the technology strategy that behind the scenes needs to, to keep things running um, within media companies in general we're seeing more and more um, of these operations teams build out, right? And so DevOps is a big topic, continues to be a trend. I think DevOps has been around for a long time. We just called it something different. Um, it's not just a role. It is a mindset and a process and a, and a way that an organization works. Um, but it does play a huge role in um, being able to quickly um, handle changes on the fly that, that may come up when you all of a sudden get a bunch of viewers that um, maybe we're Spiked faster or higher than you originally thought. So, you know, in particular, what I see as being another trend, you know, within this space and, and especially for media is um, the need to monitor your analytics in real time. And, and really, you know, you could call this maybe live streaming analytics. And, and what I mean by that is um, as you've got um, a show that's, that's just recently gone live or, or is, has, has aired on, on TV. Real-time monitoring: How are your users are engaging with it? To see um, where are their hotspots, where are most people talking about the the show or the content, and where potentially is there bad feedback? And you can look at bad feedback in a couple ways. One of the things that we've explored at Three Pillar is um, identifying bad streams. And what I mean by that is let's take a you know let's take a user that's online uh, or on their mobile device and they're playing. Um, a, uh, a video. We can track when they click the play button, when they pause, when they exit out, do they watch the full video, do they bounce to something else, and real time we can record all of these events. And so what we can do is take all of this data across all of these different users that are doing the same things, and we now have a, a potential for a, for a big data play here where we can take all of that data and start to make sense of it. And what that allows us to do is our visualization or our design team can create a visualization that, um, that will show in real time where are their problem spots happening. And so what this means, bringing it back to teams that are you know, potentially working on devops types of initiatives for a media company, is they can make decisions on the fly if they see that New York and L.A. Um, are getting the bulk of the traffic and there's potential bad video stream quality there. Um, on the fly, we can make changes to potentially improve it. Maybe it's switching out to a different CDN or a different caching tool um, or, or spinning up more servers, you know, working with AWS and, and, and building out an environment to take on that load in real time are ways that media companies can respond or react to these um, to these things that, that may go viral or may take on more traffic than they thought and that would help to avoid then, like yourself, someone then flipping from from their channel maybe over to Periscope or somewhere else to, to get that same content. Um, that said, I think the other thing that, that becomes a strategy that more and more media companies are looking at is they recognize that users are going to um, watch their content across multiple channels. So I may start on TV, I may move to YouTube, maybe I then flip to Periscope, but there is that natural progression where a user, um, whether it be during a single episode or a single show or across a season, is going to consume content on many different channels. And so I think media companies are starting to embrace that they need to be on all of these different um, these different channels. You look at uh, companies like Vox Media, now they have a Snapchat uh, channel where they're actually t- working with their users directly on that channel. Um, so that that's becoming a trend is is knowing that you follow the user, the user is not necessarily going to follow you um, from a viewing perspective.
0: Okay, nice. So we've talked a little bit about live streaming, Chris, and I want to ask more about that because I can remember a few years ago trying to watch sporting events on watch on ESPN three hundred and sixty or whatever the precursor to that was. And it was not a great experience. Viewing was very choppy. You would sometimes miss like entire plays if Absolutely, you're trying to watch yeah. a football game. And now it's not broadcast quality, but it's also not that far away. So can you talk a little bit about some of the changes that have un- that the tech world has seen that are allowing live streaming to be as high quality as it is now? And then also kind of what you see in the future for, like how much longer will it be before broadcast is kind of subsumed by internet streaming.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I, I we, in my family, we experienced the same thing. My son is a San Francisco 49ers fan. I don't know how that happened, but, uh, we don't want, we don't get the games here in DC. And so we do a lot of live streaming online. And I remember a few I guess you know, a year, two years ago, it was a pretty bad live streaming quality video that, that we were watching, um, from our computer then tethered to, or uh, you know, the, or then airplaying it to the TV, and it's it's gotten better. And I think one of the reasons that we've seen it really, you know, I guess come a long way in the last gosh year and a half or so, is companies like Twitter and that's bought Periscope, and companies like Meerkat and and some of the other social networks that are um, that are that are now getting into the live streaming piece. It's the technology is catching up. The I think that um, media companies had recognized that users were starting to go elsewhere for content. And I think when they saw that and they realized that they were at risk of losing losing viewers and losing users to other other mediums or other channels, companies started making some heavy investments into live streaming technologies. And so you see um, lots of custom video player um, product companies out there that offer not just an off-the-shelf video player um, that you can embed into any online experience or application, but, but products that are actually highly customized so that media companies can take them and then manipulate those players um, to fit the needs of of their product or their application. Uh, companies like Livestreaming.com are now uh, really, really helping to uh, allow new media companies to come into the live streaming space, which used to be a very expensive um, infrastructure to, to set up. From a social standpoint, individual people are now live streaming um, their own content, right? It's you know, Including it's, you. Including me, right? <laughs> Periscope, Meerkat um, what's the new one that just came out that we were trying out with, uh, is, uh yeah. it's a beam, beam, right? Mm-hmm. I, I've, I've played around a little bit with beam. I'm, I'm not too sure if it's going to work, but again, users are wanting to show other people, their, their followers, what's going on in real time. Um, and then they expect to be able to do the same with the media companies that, that they, that they follow every single day. Um, so the technology is definitely caught up and I, I think it's, it's, it's really grounded in the fact that, Media companies recognized that they they were at risk of losing viewers, and they needed to embrace that change and, and follow the the viewers to to these new channels so that they could they could stay in touch with their, um, with their with their users.
0: Okay, so let me ask you about monetization for a second, Chris, because that's been the sixty-four thousand dollar question for media companies of all stripes for the last decade, at least. What do you see as being the most viable business model for media and entertainment companies in a future where the main delivery mechanism for content is the World Wide Web and the main way, quote unquote, traditional video content is being accessed as video on demand?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a big one. So uh, I guess that's why it's the $64,000
0: question. Yeah, or, uh, or billion or trillion. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. So, uh, you know, monetization has been, um, I wouldn't consider that a trend within the media space. That has been a top priority for media companies uh, for a very long time, but it does continue to be um, a goal or a, uh, an, an, you know, a, uh, a priority that 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 is is often changing how they go about monetizing their content. With the rise of video on demand and with um, more users um, consuming content in in a social way, um, it does create a level of personalization. And I think users are now understanding that, or viewers rather, are understanding that they are going to see advertising, but they expect in many times or many scenarios that. It should be personalized to to something that's of interest to them. I think that viewers are smart. They understand that their behaviors online are being tracked, and when they see advertisements pop up on a traditional, let's say, you know, online newspaper uh, site, that they're gonna see ads that are related to products that they've potentially been surfing for in the past. I think with Facebook and and everyone getting. You know, interested in the privacy policies behind Facebook, everyone understands now that Facebook uses your demographics, your data, to understand what type of person you are and what type of ads likely fit for you. So taking that into the media world, content companies, um, you know, companies that are streaming media, whether it be on the set-top box, over a, a device like Apple TV, or on a mobile or web experience, they're looking to personalize um um, find value in the advertising and potentially um, engage with it. It's no longer just an ad spot that is just shown pre-roll, post-roll, or mid-roll during a video, but there are, there are more and more um, interactions that happen within the, within the advertisement itself. Um, so video on demand, as it continues to rise, uh, we see companies um, that are building advertising products that, um, that are highly personalized Um, products that can tap into these traditional ad agencies that have a a backlog of available ads uh, or available marketing tools out there.
0: And and now that you can can publish out to many of these different tools. So do you think that will change the way that advertising messages are created? For example, Budweiser has the famous Clydesdales. They're in commercials for the Super Bowl, which is fantastic. But other than like... Making people think, oh, that's a cute commercial about a puppy and a Clydesdale becoming friends. Like, doesn't really do that much for Budweiser as a company. Do you think we'll we'll start seeing more interactive ads that like actually drive conversions, things along those lines?
1: Yeah, I think that I think advertising. Uh, I think that media companies will continue to use ads you know, in the near term um, that are uh, promoting a product, that are um, really pitching to the user. Right? I, I don't think that that's been around for a long time and I don't see that disappearing. Mm-hmm. I think what we will start to see, though, is from an advertising standpoint, companies move into the media space that weren't previously media companies for the purpose of advertising. And what I mean by that is, is we'll start to see companies um, create their own content that is interesting and valuable or meaningful content to their user base um, that then serves a dual purpose of also advertising. So I think a good example of that. I mean, we've we've seen in movies for for a long time. There's obviously the product placements that happen, right? There's. Um, the Reese's Pieces in in E.T. and there's the Coca-Cola soda that shows up in a you know in a in a a clip of a movie Um, taking that concept um, that's been you know somewhat of an old school idea we now see companies like Chipotle Um, Chipotle has now has content that's on Hulu um, a show called Farmed and Dangerous right and so it it stretches it a bit if you watch a show like that you don't Feel like, wow, this is just one long Chipotle advertisement. But in many ways, they've created a show that is promoting and is really um, based around the type of product that Chipotle offers in store. And so I think we'll see more and more companies moving that direction where. Um, they're actually producing their own their own content and becoming a media company or a subsidiary of their companies, becoming a, a media organization that can reach their 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 fans and their users in a new way. And it's it's not it's not just showing the Clydesdale and spending millions of dollars for a super Super Bowl ad to do so. They're able to to shift that budget and and create. Um, a content um, strategy that can, can reach their users. And then tying that back to the technology, the the, the barrier for entry is not as expensive as it used to be. Um, you look at um, products like Roku, and Roku's um, offerings and the ability to create a channel on Roku, it's, it's a fairly straightforward and easy process, assuming you can Develop the channel to get onto an OTT environment with Roku. Now, Apple TV is a bit more locked down. They pick and choose what channels are going to show up on on their product or their platform. But we are seeing more and more companies uh, or or products come out there where if you have the content, you can easily distribute it out, and it's not expensive. Um, that's a very different model than you know having to produce an advertisement and then pay to get the advertisement out in front of viewers on a traditional set-top box environment.
0: So, yes, speaking of uh, everyday companies or non-media companies becoming media companies, Uber was in the news recently for uh, something in the media space. Can you tell a little bit about what they're up to?
1: Yeah, that's right. This happened, uh, I think, uh, just last week. Uber has announced that they will create and have an in-car magazine. Um, so again, we're seeing companies non that are not traditionally a media company creating content um, and, and starting to move into sort of that media that media space. So I would imagine for uber, yes, this is going to enhance the overall customer experience or add more value to their customers that are in car or while they're um, driving one from one place to the next but, this opens up potential new revenue streams for for uber now there's there's advertising dollars and and marketing that they can now start to do um, and they can get more more data on what types of content their their users are interested in so that they can start to make um, other guesses and bets on on their clients so again another example of a company that was not a media company starting to create content and and move into that that media space
0: well, I'm glad you bring that up, Chris, because we here at 3Pillar have a little bit of experience with creating original content. You're in the midst of it right now, as a matter of fact, personally experiencing it. Yeah. There's been some talk around here of creating a an, a, an iOS app for the Innovation Engine podcast itself. Yeah, so I guess we're doing the, the real unveil right now. Uh, yeah, we'll see if this makes the final cut. But <laughs> okay. what, what what can you tell us about the Innovation Engine podcast app at this point? Yeah, absolutely. So, oh, I guess this is
1: what episode we're in the mid 70s, nearly 80s at this point, right? Yep. So, we'll hit 100 before the end of the year. And, um, you know, just to, to take a step back, I think one of the things that we've seen and we've been part of is, you know, podcasts in general have really become a um, what used to be a very um, sort of niche industry that. Only the hardcore listeners were really interested in. Podcasting now become somewhat mainstream. NPR obviously has their own shows that are just focused on podcasts. Um, just recently, we saw a company called Howl launch, which is really the Netflix of podcasts. Obama recently made a trip out and was on a podcast. So yeah, for us, what we've identified is an opportunity to take all of our content and for our listeners that are coming back to, to tune into to all of our, our new episodes, create a mobile experience um, where we can house all of this content in one spot, and then with that, offer up additional content, related materials, um, and ways to, to engage with 3Pillar beyond the podcast, and it's all done within a mobile experience. So the plan is to um, quickly launch a, a mobile app that's really focused towards the listener, um, and is, is a one a one stop product to uh, to consume all of the content that that uh, that you and your team are are creating here. Um, along with that, though, I mean the other thing we see from a three pillar just in general our, our perspective is you know we have a we have a labs team here and we have a, what we call our advanced technology group and we have org- uh, teams of engineers and designers and uh, that um, are constantly looking at. How do we apply emerging technologies to current business problems that our clients have? And so one of the things that we're looking at from a podcast standpoint is, how could we actually take our labs team and beyond just building a player, a mobile app that's a player, how could we start to build some features and functionality that we think could be applicable to other companies within, primarily within the media industry? One of the things that we've been talking about recently from a podcasting perspective is... Is the discoverability piece? Um, it's often hard to find that content that you're looking for uh, without having uh, someone refer it to you. From a podcast perspective, right? Mm-hmm. So you can easily go to iTunes. You can see the top twenty-five. You can read all sorts of blogs and fan posts on on suggested podcasts, and you can often get referrals just from or, or um, you know recommendations from from your friends and family, but what we see is an opportunity to um to take it to a new level and build out some sort of a solution that really allows a user to search based on the on the metadata that may live underneath these podcasts to discover these podcasts or these these new shows that they otherwise wouldn't find um so that they can build out a you know a, a more compelling playlist that they can can then listen to um so we are working on some ways to um handle metadata management um, and, and and tagging and categorization of of podcasts and really of the content that's within those episodes to really enhance the user's list, the, the, the listeners user experience uh, and discover episodes or types of content that's interesting to them so stay tuned it's there's a, there's a lot to work on but i think the initial play for us here is is just to to get a, a podcast player launched uh, and then we'll start to work on behind the scenes some of these these bigger items that, that we think might be in, uh, interesting for, for the media space in general.
0: So stay tuned for the Innovation Engine podcast, coming soon to an app store near you, specifically if you're on an iOS <laughs> right. device. Android, maybe later on, we'll see. Yeah, we'll we'll burn that bridge when we get there. Uh, okay, so so let me wrap up with one thing we haven't really talked about yet. We've talked about video, we've talked about audio, we haven't talked about the print world, or you know, print is, is often moved to online these days. Are, are you working with any companies in the quote-unquote traditional print space, and if so, what issues are you seeing them face, and, and what are you trying to help them out with?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, <clears throat> yeah, in addition to working with, um, I mentioned PBS, and working with more of the new media companies, or uh, online media, or the broadcast world, yes, we work with newspapers and publications and, and magazines, um, and some of these different more research based companies that are media companies as well. So we have one in D C that that's a magazine and then we also work with a large newspaper based out of London. And they're they're constantly fighting the battle of having to transvor transform, transform and, and really fit into a digital era where, you know, their business model and they're they're really rooted in this print first type of model that was the case they're really having to shift and become a digital first um, approach we are seeing that their users or their their customers continue to subscribe and pay for print um really but they expect
0: oh for for print for okay for a physical
1: newspaper but they expect that with that they will also get uh, a digital experience as well now yes over time Newspaper subscriptions are going down, digital's going up, but there still is a hardcore um, base of customers that are still buying newspapers. So they're not completely going away from that. I think yeah. we will continue to see them shift more towards digital, right? But, um, but they're not, they're, they have not turned completely away from newspapers. So what does that mean from a technology standpoint? Uh, I think probably the, the workflow that we used to see is that uh, writers would prepare for uh, a new issue They'd send it off to the printers, and then they would either in parallel or after the fact figure out how can they then push that to the web. Now we're seeing obviously breaking news is happening faster than than a 24-hour cycle from a print perspective. So things are getting published directly to web mm-hmm. uh, or going straight out via social media, and the newspaper itself is having to catch up. So we have seen the workflow shift Uh, I think this is probably a a given. Um, But of course, we're seeing the shift where the workflow is digital first, then print. But we are seeing a need within these larger media companies to build out a content platform that allows you to really publish to both or author once and publish many type of scenarios. So Mm -hmm. rather than having writers work within a uh, print-focused software tool, uh, they're working within some sort of web content management system. And then there's an integration from that CMS over to whatever the print products are. So we're, we're helping companies to solve that, that back-end workflow and really figure out how do they build audience products that gets that content to the user in the easiest way possible. Um, and then on the magazine side, same thing. We're seeing magazines continue to be popular, but they're moving to a digital uh, scenario. And, and what users are expecting is that if I... If I read an article that may be print, then there's a way that I can actually interact with it online, either, either talk with the talk with the writer or talk with other people that are interested in the topic or follow similar related uh, topics. So, yeah, I think it's um, from a trend perspective, this is all stuff that's been around for a while, but we we continue to see media and technology companies combined solve solve these these problems that have existed for a while in new ways and and really and trying to do it in a much faster, cheaper model, right? It's not buying million-dollar-plus enterprise software tools to handle this. It's, it's building small, customizable products and applications that, that fit their organization's needs um, based on, on their workflow and how they distribute content out to their users.
0: Okay, Chris, and I can't let you out of here without asking you about the big Apple event from last week. What were some big takeaways for you from the event? What are you looking for for your clients to maybe be interested in pursuing on the the Apple front?
1: Yeah, so um, I think the, the the biggest one from a media perspective is obviously the announcement of um, the new TV OS, um, and that's now being open to developers to develop apps on the TV. So um, you know, I think Apple tried to position this as you know this was the first time this is being done. Uh, you know I think um, you know Android and, and the, what Google has done with the Play Store and Google TV is, has already started to do this, but obviously is not doesn't have the market share that maybe Apple does from a, a TV perspective. Um, but what this does really start to um, allow organizations to do is is, is have content and have a, an experience with their customers on the TV on TV devices. Uh, again, we're gonna start to see this sort of blend of companies that traditionally weren't media companies starting to now have a, an experience on the TV and start to think about how they can have content there. Um, but for us what we will see is is um, from a development standpoint um, all sorts of new compelling applications and products that um, no longer are just on iPad, iOS or rather iPad or iPhone but are, are now on the TV as well.
0: Okay, nice. Well, great food for thought. Uh, Chris, you're the first guest who has come on and periscoped an episode. So we thank you for A, being here and B, helping spread the word about the Innovation Engine podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on, Will. I'm excited to uh, maybe come back and, and be on another episode in the not so distant future here.
0: Yeah, perhaps we'll have you on to unveil the official iOS app for I, the Innovation th- I Engine think that's Podcast. That's a great idea. So, 30 days from now, I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you can take that to the bank. Chris Graham will be back in one month for the unveiling of the Innovation Engine Podcast app for iOS. If you'd like to learn more about Chris Graham, you can follow him on Twitter at @chris_gram. Chris Graham. Thanks once again to Chris Graham for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. As Chris mentioned on this week's episode, we're in the process of building out an iOS app for the innovation engine podcast. That means we're going to take a short sabbatical from creating new episodes to focus on making the innovation engine podcast app the best that it can be. Never fear though. We'll be back with you in October with more original content featuring interviews with some of the world's foremost thought leaders on corporate innovation until then. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next month. The innovation engine podcast is recorded, produced, edited and published each week by three pillar global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.3pillarglobal.com.